Hey Scrappers, Sam here. Got something a little bit special for you today. A sneak peek into the Patreon slash Ko-Fi slash whatever you want to call it supporter feed. Uh, we just wrapped up the first arc of Foul and Fair called Is Whispering Nothing. And now this is a lore episode that sort of is expanding the setting for the for the growing story that our patrons and supporters have been building with us. And, um, yeah, this is the beginning of, I think there's probably going to be one of these between each arc of the story, of which there are going to be a bunch by the time we're done. So this is just kind of a sneak peek into what we have on the supporter feed. The second arc of the story will begin next month, and, um, I hope to see, or, you know, well, I can't see it, but I hope you all hear it there. Anyways, here's the show. Fair. Lore Interlude. The Unending War. The unending war. Where to begin? Where to begin? Because when one wants to understand what we're fighting for, one must understand how we got here. I believe we will have to gloss over the bulk of the ancient times. We will attempt to fill in some of the context surrounding the current conflict between our great nation and, of course, the Zekans to the north. Our current borders, the disputed lifeless peaks to the north, and the Quicksilver River to the south specifically, are a fairly recent development. The continent of Pantas, which covers nearly all of the known land in the western hemisphere of our world, was filled with one massive nation, called the Kalthos Empire, and its vassal states, for over a thousand years. Longer than reliable written records persist, at least, going back to a time when rulers were considered gods and their supposed lifespans measured in centuries, if not millennia. The record keepers of today don't assign much value to the numbers from such an early age. It seems our ancient ancestors were prone to wild exaggeration. Now, for generations, Kolthos had been in a state of decline. The aging royal family was producing heirs that were at once too numerous too unremarkable and too ambitious to maintain political power over an empire that spanned thousands of miles in every direction, and much of their military might was controlled directly by rulers of the vassal states, or in some cases entirely independent from any leadership Kolthos would have recognized as structured at all. There were vast troops of mounted soldiers out in the west who led an essentially nomadic life who Though they were loyal to the Kolthos royal family in name, in practice they only answered really to their troop leaders and they led an essentially independent existence. 
There were no real external threats to worry about, other continents being almost vanishingly distant, and the sheer size of the oceans provided an essentially impassable defense. The entire continent was ostensibly under Colthos's control. This state of affairs was, of course, a prime environment for complacency to develop amongst those in power, and unrest amongst those outside, and the powder keg only needed an appropriate spark. The spark was provided, as it so often is in all of history, by the death of the Emperor, Verkal of Colthos. Verkal was a particularly fecund ruler by reputation, you understand, and his children were numerous. No fewer than eight heirs presented themselves at his funeral pyre and made claims for the throne. Several had strong political factions backing them, at least one was a high-ranking military official, and a few were beloved of large swaths of the people. These heirs were, at least, wise enough to see that going to war with one another would be ruinous to the entire nation. It was at the funeral pyre itself that a heated negotiation took place, and the assembled claimants to the throne agreed that the problem had to be solved peaceably. They would leave a trusted regent in Koltak and journey to neutral ground to decide on a solution that would be best for the entire empire. Of course, each of the potential heirs likely saw that what was best for the entire empire and the nations as a whole was for themselves to be in charge, but that's neither here nor there. The eight claimants sequestered themselves in a remote keep in the lifeless peaks, along with numerous trusted advisors, lesser scions of the ruling family, military leaders, the full gamut. They swore to their respective followers that when they emerged, Kothos would have a new leader and prosperity would reign. Of course, it was not to be. This was just over 200 years ago, and it was almost certainly the greatest act of betrayal our world has ever seen. One of the lesser lords attending the summit, a person by the name of Draco, had a base of power almost exclusively in Portus, the vassal state directly to the south of Kolthos, probably the largest of all the vassal states at the time. They sent word to their contacts to the south, including a description of the location of the keep and a list of those attending it. This list, in its original form, survives to this day and is enshrined under glass in the halls of the Portian Senate. To a group of Portian generals, the generals who were thought to be loyal to the crown, thought to be loyal to the descendants of the fallen king. These generals were, instead, ambitious. They assembled a huge portion host with great speed and marched to the northwest, into Colthian sovereign territory. Though Nascondilio had natural protections from the mountains and a small number of actual guards, the great majority of those sequestered there were more of the intellectual or noble caste. They weren't fighters. The siege was over before it began. The portion military encircled the keep and used a series of black powder throwing siege engines to burn the whole thing hollow inside of a day. There were no survivors. Not even Draco. Kalthos was without a head. Word traveled with alacrity. Soon, the regions who'd been left in charge of the Empire were marshalling the best of their forces along the wide-open southern border with Portus, but they were well behind in terms of establishing supply lines and positioning troops. Before they knew it, with the bulk of their military turned south, the forces of Zekis from the north pushed down into Colthian territory and rolled through the countryside, while nomadic clans drove up along the western coast and sacked cities and towns alike, meaning next to no resistance. Even distant polar Trinis joined the fight, 
Perhaps they sensed the way the wind was blowing and wished to make sure that they'd be showing on the winning side. With Portis's agreement, they expelled Kothos's loyalists and ran a column of troops across half a continent to join the revolution. The great military power of Kothos was on the verge of collapse within a year. In the north, especially the northwest, their cities surrendered upon sight of the advancing Zekian army, ceding more and more territory until the northernmost nation had pushed all the way to the lifeless peaks with minimal losses. The western flank was entirely wiped out. The worst of the fighting, to be sure, was along Portus's northern border, but the portions were buoyed by the Trinians, and the Colthus was badly demoralized and outnumbered. Before the end of the second year, the war was over. The greatest empire the world had ever seen lay in smoldering ruins, ready to be chopped to pieces by those who'd survived. Of course, most of the people who lived in Kothos stayed exactly where they were. They'd surrendered, throwed down their arms, opened up their houses. As far as the everyday citizen was concerned, the war brought a change of flag, and little else after the dead were buried and the fields replanted. Do not listen to those who say the Kothians are a lost people. They live all around us though mostly, of course, in the very places they lived before the fall. Perhaps you are one of them, at least in part. Talk of their disappearances is all mystical nonsense, not worth considering. And this matters, of course, to the greater geopolitical future of the region. We will come back to it. But as the people of Pantas went to rebuild their lives, there was the small matter of territory, was there not? It was easy enough for the Trinians to simply march back to the south with gifts and spoils and the eternal gratitude of their allies. They were too far away to have designs on expanding their nation. The nomadic troops, on the other hand, were each quite small in size, though there were a great number of them. Many more orders and tribes and such, who were not a militant by nature, of course, and they all fell into this group as well, but by their very nature of their societies, they wished no specific territory to settle, but rather freedom to range over vast distances. Alliances were made based on the models Kolthos had used, but without the expectations that this people owed any loyalty to the larger nations any longer. It would merely exist peacefully in the same spaces. As long as no one was killing one another, there were no problems between them. There was a rather thorny issue yet unresolved. Portus had struck the first blow against Kolthos. Without their maneuver to remove what was in essentially the entire leadership of the Empire, the war may well have been an unending, infinitely bloody affair. It may well have even been lost. But it was Zekis that had seized the bulk of the territory. And it's worth diving into this a little deeper. The Zekins had won the bulk of this territory bloodlessly. They had accepted the surrenders of cities and towns over hundreds of miles. It kept those people alive, and they'd absorbed much of what was left of their military reserves. Remember, the Colthians were still there, but with so much of their territory in Zekian hands, and so much incentive to simply meld into them, in the days following the war, these places simply became Zekis, before any treaty could be settled. Like Colthos before, Zekis is a monarchy, of course, their current ruler, Queen Tamiris, can actually trace her heritage back to Verkhol, and this, of course, is important to those who believe in the sort of divinity to the royal line, and it gave the Colthians something to fall back on, a reason to believe that they were still serving a legitimate ruler. So, of course, there was unrest and unhappiness and small, isolated rebellions, as so often happen amongst an essentially conquered people. But for the most part, Zekis had the land, they had the loyalty of the people, 
and they had taken far fewer losses in the two years of war than our own great nation. When diplomats from both nations met in the smoldering ruins of the once great capital of Kothos to divide up the land they'd won together, the Zekans came with a show of might that the portions could not match. They entrenched themselves in the former capital, and they declared, All that we have taken shall remain ours. All that we have taken shall remain ours. A betrayal that echoes through history. One betrayal began the war against Kothos, and a second ended it. The portion contingent was in no way prepared to fight the force they'd encountered. They had their orders, and they knew that the Senate believed our nation was entitled to some portion of the lands that they had conquered. They had not walked into a negotiation. Rather, they'd arrived to find Zekis coronating itself. There was nothing they could do but draw a line on the map, at the lifeless peaks, of course, and demand, perhaps meekly, that Zekis advance no farther. The summit was concluded, and the portions returned to the south, crossing the mountains to deliver their shameful news to the Senate in Baltic. An uneasy peace was established then. Prudence dictated it. Trinus, being so far away, had no interest in joining a wall between Portus and Zekis. The conflagration of nomadic forces to the west were for the most part overjoyed to be free of any association with what they called the stagnant people. Portus had suffered terrible losses during the most intense of the fighting, and our leaders of the time feared that Zekis would use their newfound wealth and power to turn Trinus into an ally and crush them from both sides, as they had all done to Kolthos. We huddled in on ourselves for a generation. We built up our fortifications. We replenished our people in the natural way, aided by the uncovering of several barons, which we will discuss at a later time, and developed new forms of weaponry and armor. This became a time of great innovation. Portus is, you understand, a meritocracy, first and foremost. Our leaders on the Senate, we choose from the best and brightest political, economic, scientific, and military minds. Our universities adulate the greatest scholars and draw researchers from all over the world, even from across the oceans. Because we are a people who are truly free, we choose our own leaders, we choose our positions. The greatest rise to the top, where they can use their greatness to embiggen us all. So, though we needed to divert military power to defending the mountain border, for a few decades at least the attention of the nation was on building, and there were those amongst our leadership who could not forget the crimes Zekis had committed, and the territory and power that was owed us. Their words, of course. We were the first to develop reliable personal firearms. Single shot they were, but capable of felling a man or a horse at a tremendous distance and punching through almost any known form of armor, while light enough that a soldier could carry one or two on a full day's march. Our military leaders developed complicated maneuvers and groupings, determined the best ways to deploy these long-range soldiers in combinations with traditional infantry, and always with an eye on fighting in the mountains. We built up in this way, and we waited for the war that we knew was coming. The Zekians are as treacherous as they are ambitious. One must understand their attack was inevitable. When they began marching through the mountains in their antiquated formations, with their longbows and their spears, we were more than prepared to meet them, to destroy their forces at a distance from above with terrible firepower. It was one of the greatest routes in military history. The reign of lead, they called it. It was also the beginning of the unending war. For, 
Though we had the superior understanding of the territory and superior equipment, they had nearly infinite numbers, and over time they were able to capture guns and use them for their own ends, create their own copies of our technology, develop guerrilla tactics of their own. The lines of battle twist through those mountains, forever moving, sometimes calming for months or even years at a time, but never truly ending. The ground is stained red through all of the major crossings, places where no merchant or trader or civilian has dared to pass for a century, lest they be cut down from both sides. The engines of progress are driven by the fuel of war. Our brilliant thinkers have never stopped searching for new ways to gain advantage over our hated foes. Our soldiers bear longer, more accurate gun snouts, each of which has four barrels, and these barrels rotate automatically to speed the firing process, but it is not gunpowder that will win this war. There is a resource hidden among us, a source of new and practically limitless power. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is not a subject to be discussed outside of the most trusted circle. Suffice it to say, there exists a means of taking this continent by the throat and bringing it to heel. We need only make sure that we control it before our enemies. I've gone off on a tangent. I'm afraid I've quite lost my place. Let's see now. The war. The war as it stands now, correct? Oh, very well. There have been numerous attempts to broker peace, even brief interludes of armistice, but they never hold. The enmity between our nations simply runs too deep. That original betrayal, to say nothing of the absorption and perhaps inheritance of our great and ancient enemy, makes peace impossible. Until Portus has the land that we rightfully won, that we rightfully conquered, the kingdom we rightfully conquered, and the tyrant that was Kolthos and is now Zekis has fallen, there can be no peace. Our victory is not far off now.